us on another episode of About That. This time, I'd like you to meet Marianne Diaz, a reformed gangster from Los Angeles, California, who now helps other gangsters or gang members reset their lives. Now, let's begin the conversation with one of the projects she's most passionate about. Marianne, could you talk to us a little bit about Clean Slate and what exactly you do there? Clean Slate is a program that I founded in 1995. I founded it because I... Yeah, I'd worked for the county as a gang intervention worker, and at some point I felt that while it is great to orchestrate peace, it doesn't last. So I started thinking about how it might be more helpful to work with individuals and deal with whatever is causing them to be violent. So I had my own issues with violence, so... I had some insider knowledge about it. And being a gang member, I had access to gangs, you know, talk to them about what it's like to um, deal with all their emotions through violence. And that's basically what we were taught uh, growing up in a very racist population because, you know, you know, that still exists here in our country, unfortunately. Uh, so, and I had a lot of tattoos when I got out of prison. I did four years in prison for gang related activity. And when I came out, Although I had a really good job with the county, I wanted to launch into something different. And it was more difficult finding work when you're tatted on your hands and fingers and stuff. So I went looking for tattoo removal. The laser had just come out for tattoo removal in uh, about in the early 90s. Okay. And my quote was $10,000 to get them off. Wow. How many tattoos did you have at that point? About 20. Okay. And so... What I thought of is I met somebody uh, through a friend who he was a he was a surgeon and he had a laser and he said, you know, I have to do this as a community service. And I said, no, you know, I want to pay you something. I'm not I'm not trying to get anything for free. I don't want you to tell me you did it for me. I want to know I did it. And so we worked out a payment schedule, about two hundred dollars a session. And, you know, I had a job. I could pay it. I saved for it, gave up some things to do it. And so it helped me launch the tattoo removal portion of Clean Slate. And that is what funds our other programs. People pay for their tattoo removal, but they pay on a sliding scale based on their ability, um, where the tattoo is, if it's facial, on their hands, neck, things that keep you from getting work. If it's a hate tattoo, we definitely want to help them get it off. So we we slide, and we were fortunate in that the city of Hawaiian Gardens here in Los Angeles County hosts it, and they give us some support with their own residents as long as they fit the criteria. Like you were saying, everything that's part of your past is definitely a part of your your current identity. Could you explain to us also the thought process then in having tattoos removed from gang members? Is it really is it just a question of so that there is no markings on the outside? Should they go look for work or try to do something more above board? Or is there something deeper, more therapeutic involved? Well, it's definitely an emotional decision. It is. I mean, the last, I think the last tattoo that I got off of me was the first one that got put on as a member of the gang that I, that I joined. And I, I really had to think long and hard about removing that. And so, yeah, it's a difficult decision. It's, it's mostly because from what we get, because I've, we've done thousands of tattoo removals since 95. The common thread is that it's still important to them, but now they have children or now they have a job, uh, they're going to college, they're doing something different. They Society doesn't change how they see them. 
and other gangs don't change how they see them. If you have your hood on your neck or your forehead or your cheeks or your, or your hands, I mean, that person may not have, may not be in a place yet where they're evolving towards a peaceful life. So they see you as an enemy. So they want to avoid some of that. Um, they're tired of going to jail, tired of getting hurt, going to the hospital, you know, just all those things. And, and they want something different for their kids. I have, I have not run into, I ran into one, which I still think is crazy, but any gang member who has kids who wants their kids to be in a gang. I've, I mean, they say that it's generational. It is because kids see their parents and they emulate that. Right. But it, I don't believe the parents are saying you need to be in this gang. I think it's unavoidable. Kids do what they see, not what you tell them. How bad or how prevalent was the issue of the gang violence back then? Bad. Has it diminished? Sometimes. Sometimes. It, you know, it goes up, it goes down. In, in those days, it was, I mean, that's why they started the gang service, because it was so intense. The amount of homicides were enough that they tried an idea that was really controversial, using gang members to go out and work with gang members. What made you feel compelled to join a gang? Was it something that had to be done? Was it a rite of passage? Uh, you had to be part of a group like that growing up? It's interesting, because there's a lot of reasons why I joined the gang. I felt in some strange way that it brought me closer to a culture that had been kind of shamed out of me uh, being born here in the United States. And my parents were immigrants. They're from Mexico. And I'm 58. So you got to think about the time. It was in the 60s. So at that time, going to schools and a lot of them, when my father tried to move into a, a white, a whiter school, uh, he felt it was a better school which was traumatic for us because the whiter school didn't like us much. And, you know, I was just thinking about this the other day that in kindergarten, my first language was Spanish. And the teacher punished me every time I said something to her in Spanish and made me take a nap. And how humiliating that was to me that I was always taking a nap because, you know, it's kind of adjustment to go from one language to another. But I learned well and my parents stopped speaking Spanish in the home. And so it was kind of um, shamed out of me. And so so then as, as I got it, as I got older in school and I was, you know, I learned how to deal with things violently because my father, he was a, like a domestic violence person with my mother. And I saw a lot of violence. I saw that I didn't want to be my mother. I wanted to, I didn't want to be the, the receiver of violence the power was in the person who could wield it. So I, of course, started being a lot like my father, and he encouraged it in a lot of ways. He was a boxer. He, you know, that wasn't his only work, but he used to box and put me on a, on a speed bag at five and a heavy bag at like eight. So I was really good at fighting. So that's how I dealt with the shame and the humiliation in schools. Like I just started beating people up. And so it worked kept people from messing with me. And as I, as the more it worked, the more I, I felt confident and like people wouldn't mess with me. Then when I hit, you know, sixth grade, going into junior high, <clears throat> I saw a lot of other people from different cultures. Like we, we were all considered Mexicans by everybody. They didn't bother to ask, you know, <laughs> but we had Hondurans and Guatemalans and Salvadorians and and Cubans and Puerto Ricans going to our schools, of course, born here, but their culture was those. And we all formed a little group together. 
to keep people from messing with us. That was the initial thing. The, the other benefit of joining a gang was that I was able to um, intimidate my father into not hurting my mother anymore. Oh, right. So the power dynamic shifted greatly in the house once I joined a gang. And my homies came over and told him, you know, our homegirl doesn't want you messing with her mother anymore. And if you do, we're going to deal with you. Right. And it was like, okay, it's like that. And I told my dad, told my dad, yeah, it's like that. Yeah. Keep your hands off my mother. I mean, for a kid, that's really powerful. I think I was 13. And so, you know, how do, how do you, how do you not get drawn into the power that the gang possessed at that time to push back against racism and to push back against violence against my against somebody I cared about. It didn't all work out well for me. Obviously, I went to prison. So right. there's there there's some sacrifices you make. How old were you when you were put in prison? Well, let me see. There were a couple times I went to county, but when I did my real time, I was about 19. Yeah. I came out when I was 22. How did that time in there change you? It changed me in a lot of ways. One, it, it really gave me a lot more power in the community with the gangs because you it's the same thing like going to going to like school. You know, if you go to the county, it's like you went to, I don't know, like a community college or something. But I went to the state, I went to the penitentiary, and that gave me like, you know, a four-year degree right. with the gangs, you know? And so, and I learned a lot in there. I learned a lot about who I was and who I wanted to be. I had time away from the influence of the street. And I met a lot of women who were much older than I was, who were there like for their whole life. And they were telling me like, this isn't you. You're too smart. This, this doesn't fit you. You, you just, there's something about you that we're drawn to. And we listen to you as if like, we want to follow you. And they said, you need to use this some other way. So, you know, and I also had a deputy sheriff who was the one who arrested me all the time. And, uh, all the time. So all you had the like time. frequent yeah. flyer points. Yeah. Okay. yeah. And he knew there were several times that he would catch me with some drugs and he would throw them out. And he said, just go home. Or he'd catch me drunk. And he'd say, look, I'm going to give you a ride home. Because he knew me prior to, um, well, my mother was diagnosed with cancer when I was like 12. And before that, I was a different kid. Um, when I heard that, I just felt like God was really like an ass, Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. like she's already being brutalized by my dad and now you're going to do this to her. And I just kind of lost a lot of that tender part of me. It was gone and he noticed it. I had a nickname in the gang and most people thought that was my name. Which was? Would you? Malita. Uh -huh. And they thought that was my name. I mean, even like little some, bad girl. Yeah. Right? Even some teachers called me that. They thought that was my name. But he always called me Marianne. And he said, I know who you are. And that made a difference for me. He helped me get the job at the county as a gang worker. I still, I'm still in touch with him. We still talk. He's really, he is so like blown away that what he saw in me was nurtured at some point. Were you deeply involved in drugs when you were put in prison? No, I didn't really no. do drugs. Okay. So it wasn't like you had to go through any kind of physical no. rehab or anything no, I like didn't that? Really do it. I drank. I drank a lot, um, which is a drug. Um, yeah. I drank a lot, but I didn't like get hooked on anything. I smoked pot kind of like everyone else did and tried a lot of stuff, but never really got like hooked on anything other than alcohol. 
I don't drink now. Right. So they put you in prison for like actual crimes. <clears throat> Attempted murder. Gang related. I mean, I wasn't by myself. There were, yes. there were like eight of us. Were you, oh, the, you were all put in prison. Yeah. Did they all go through the same kind of uh, spiritual or renewal or conversion, as it were, mental conversion while they were in there? I don't think so. I don't think so. I, I, I know one did. Um, he's now this big real estate agent. And some of us, I mean, it's interesting because there's, I don't think people know that as much, but there's a lot of gangsters that are in big places that just, you know, you have a past. You know, you make whatever you learn from it work for you. And you, you came out of prison doing this gang work with the county. Yes. Why did you want to do that? I, I didn't. I didn't know that it was something that was possible until his name is Deputy Bell at that time. He's Ken Bell. He sent some people to me. I had been out for two weeks. And he sent somebody to my sister's house, which, you know, I didn't have anywhere to live. So I lived with my sister. Sent two people there. And they were wearing these gang intervention jackets. It was youth gang service stuff. That was what's called Youth Gang Services. And it was a program of the probation department through the county. And they said, uh, we're, we're picking you up because you have an interview. And I didn't even know that what the hell they were talking about. And they said, Ken Bell sent us. And I'm like, okay, like, what am I going to be doing? They go, just let's go. So I went with them. We went downtown, met with the executive director and the assistant director of Youth Gang Services. It was an $8 million program. And uh, they interviewed me and asked me some really interesting questions. Questions that I didn't think they were going to ask me, like, so, like, what do you think about if you found somebody with a gun, a gang member with a gun, would you turn it in? And I said, no. And they said, what do you do with it? I go, well, I'd ask them to kind of like, you know, talk to them about how what that means if they get caught with it. It may have been used in other murders, maybe this and that. You know, it's not a good idea to be rolling around with a gun. And like those kind of questions and the answers I gave, I thought would definitely not get me hired, but they did. And they said, okay, well, you start work tomorrow. And I was like, what? And at that time, it was 19, maybe 1983, 84. And they started me out working. This is this really blew my mind. Okay, we're going to start you out at $1,800 a month. I mean, I'm like, what? Yeah. And they said, and here's your badge. And here's this. And here's that. And we want you to create peace. And I'm like, well, that's going to be really interesting. Because they put me in my same neighborhood that I grew right. up in. But I had eight other people working with me. So the, the concept was amazing. And today there's like gang intervention workers all over the state, right? And there's now they have a certification type thing that they do. But then it was like we were learning what, how to do this thing. And what was the goal of, of doing the gang intervention work? Was it to get people to not pit themselves against other gangs? Yeah, it was, it was to create truces. And what's interesting is like in that year, I think, in just in L.A. County, there were over three or four hundred homicides, gang related homicides. Wow. After the third year I was there, I think it was the first year in history that East L.A. had zero homicides because everybody was coming to the table, you know, right. to have talks because a lot of a lot of violence happens through misinformation. So we we were kind of like the information people and we would bring the main guys together and. A lot of the violence that happened is done by then was done by younger members who didn't understand what it meant to the gang as a whole. And you're still a member of a gang at this point. Would you consider yourself? Yeah, I consider myself like an alumni, right. you know, like I'm an alumnist and um, I'm not doing like I'm not going to any functions or anything. But I don't I don't think that it's fair 
for anyone to ask somebody to give up something that was part of their life. I mean, I've I'm, I'm nonviolent. I'm totally nonviolent. And I've always thought that the main issue with gangs is not that they're gangs. It's that they're violent. And if we could harness that kind of community that they've built politically, wow, that would be really powerful. There, there's quite a bit of us that hang out together and talk and share emails and share things back and forth. And we're into like youth justice and uh, trying to change the, the criminal justice system as a whole. Um, here's an interesting fact. To me, this is interesting. So I did some time for something I didn't do. I was arrested for something. I wasn't even anywhere near what happened, but I was arrested and, and I was tried by a jury but when I looked at that jury, I knew I was going to jail because the jury was all white and I was all tatted up, tattoos, gangster, you know. So as soon as I hit the door, I knew on their faces that I was going to jail. Like they found me repulsive and scary. So then I started thinking, man, you know, that's kind of a, that's that's interesting because we're not judged by our peers. Because once you become a felon, you can't serve on a jury. So in one way, you know, I get those notices like you know, the jury selection thing. And I have to mark that I'm a felon and they say, no, thank you. So I never have to miss work for it or, or anything right. like that. But also the bigger picture is that the people who are judging those who live a, I'll call it a hood life or a, an underground economy life or, or any of the lives that don't seem to fit mainstream society. Well, they don't get judged by people who understand well-fed and well-housed people might be the ones sitting there deciding whether or not you're going to prison. And you might have done something just out of necessity. Do you find that the ex external circumstances that led you to be part of a gang still exist then? And that Absolutely. Not, right. So not much has changed then? Oh, no. I mean, look what's happening today. I mean, come on. It's, I, think it's, I think it's always been there. Everyone couldn't see it. It's become now it's been brought to the surface. The racism that still exists and the hate towards people of color, particularly African-American males, I think, more than anything else. Latinos, I mean, now with the immigration thing, like trying to get, yeah. <laughs> trying to, you know, just attack Im immigrants from, you know, South America, Central America, any Latin American country. I mean, that seems to be the bigger target. Muslims, I mean, it's all this, this hate-generated stuff that has made it, I mean... <sighs> It's always been there. It's just now it's like it's it's something that everyone can see now. Before it was just the people who were who were the recipients of it. Right. Now it's people who like I can't believe that they're saying this in public. Well, yeah. we heard it. What do you think it would take then to change that or to to open up a, a dialogue or a conversation amongst these many groups then these tribes? Well, now I'm not I'm not as focused on gangs. I'm, I'm focused on just on oppressed populations. That's, I mean, that's my focus now is oppressed populations and the bridging of those with privilege and those without and hoping that those with privilege will start to use that privilege to impact the lives of those without. And that includes gang members. That includes the homeless. That includes LGBTQI. Wider tribes, a, right? A wider tribe of yeah. people. But my heart always will be there for the gang member who, who's misunderstood in most ways and was not given the ability to have other resources. Like, had I grown up in a different place and time, I might be the head of a huge corporation because I know how to run things. 
I know how to run things. I know how to organize things. I know how to get people to, to support my efforts because I'm sincere about them. It isn't like I'm doing this because I feel, I just feel like it. It's because it's a core of my belief that justice is what's lacking in this society. And the only way it's going to become something that is noticed as a problem is if white people start saying it's a problem because people of color have been saying it's a problem for centuries um, and nobody listened. Very few did. Um, I got to give some people some credit for that. But now, like I'm in therapy land. That's my thing. I'm a therapist. I'm in therapy land. Um, I can't get licensed because I'm a felon. Really? Ever. Okay. Um, but I work at an agency that that believes that that shouldn't be the criteria for people to work in this agency. They don't take government money, so they're not bound by anything. Um, but I run this department, this outreach department. I run it very similar to a gang. I mean, there's no doubt. My, my counselors know we're, we're in a gang. <laughs> we're in a therapeutic gang. And they go out to communities. Like we have a whole department. We have a whole, we're in Watts. That's why, that's why I wanted to do our first um, attempt at bridging cultural ideas. Like I have a lot of white counselors out there, white therapists who are out there with people of color. And what's amazing is that the people <clears throat> that I've sent out there um, are, are, are pretty open about their privilege and that they know that, that, that life is just different for a person of color. And that's really nice for a person of color to hear from a white person. Because usually people say, oh, we're all the same. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, okay. That, that, that for you, it's easy for a white person to say that we're all the same. Do you feel that people will always have this need to be part of a group regardless? People in general? Yeah, is I it think a, we all do. I think, I mean, I mean, look, this is the way our society is built. Like, you know, you choose a certain university, you'll always be part of that university. You will probably give money to it the rest of your life or root for the team, you know. Uh, law enforcement, they're set up exactly like a gang. I mean, it's, our, our US, the U.S. government is a big gang, you know, with somebody at the top that really freaks me out. But, you know, it's 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 been a really freaky roller coaster lately. And we, we operate... I mean, how, how does how does the United States operate like a gang? They somebody messes with us. We fight. We fight back. We don't, you know, we wield power. And, and I don't know how people in our in our society are going to do anything different if that's what the message is, you know, just bark louder or hit back harder and you'll win. I think that's that's definitely not the message I want to give to our communities. Yeah. I want them to listen. So for you, it's a very different definition of what it is to be part of a gang then. Now it is. Yeah. yeah. For me, it's about, you know, social justice. Like, listen to each other. See that you're, that you're all, like, struggling against the same machine. And dividing and conquer has been always the way that this society is maintained the way it is, is because we're fighting each other. What if we weren't? Yeah. What would that mean? For you, what was it that was the transition point? It was really what happened in prison and, and the influence of the others there that told you how they felt around you? Was that what began to change your perspective? Some of it, yeah. I think I think the biggest part was having one person. This is a trip, right? Having one person. I've had a lot of one persons in my life. 
but having this one person see me beyond everything else I've done, like the tattooing and the gangsterish and the attitude still saw me as that person that he met when I was like eight, you know, and said, no, this is a good kid. It's a good kid. A lot of stuff has happened to her, but this is a good kid. And that good kid is still there. And I'll never believe that it's gone. And he never did. And then I come to this place 20 years ago and the executive director then and the executive director now, they let me be me. Like, I'm still pretty thuggish. I mean, I'm not like, you know, I'm not all wearing all my colors or anything like that. But I still have an idea of where I came from and they welcome it. They they like being challenged about their belief about things and what feels comfortable to them. I think people need to start being more uncomfortable because comfort just means you're lazy, I think. To be uncomfortable means that you're really stretching yourself and and going into like unknown spaces that may inform you in a way that has you seeing the world differently than what you believe it is. Because a lot of it is like, to me, a lot of it is fed to you and you believe it and like like question it. Do you have children who are members of gangs? No. They, no. They never asked you they could be? Well, no, I made it clear okay. to the gangs. Right. <laughs> like, you know, my kids are not going to be gang members. They're going to be something else. Do you feel that they missed out in some sense socially because of that? No. No. I think that they, I mean, they. it's like there's um, there's always people in the hood that don't join the gang. They still are very um, much part of the community. They just decided not to join the gang, you know. And no, I, you know, I didn't want my kids to die. Right. And that didn't mean they wouldn't die just because they weren't in a gang, but the probability is much higher when you are. And so that was important to me. They're all doing really great. I mean, it wasn't always easy. Being the kid of a gangster is really hard because the rules are really strict and it's, really intense. I went through a lot of therapy to undo a lot of the things that I learned as a gang member, you know, um, to now my, me and my grandchildren get, have a total different relationship than me and my kids, right. you know, cause I'm different. Like I'm not, it's okay to be afraid of things. And it wasn't okay for my kids to be afraid of things. And it wasn't okay for me to be afraid of things. It's okay for my granddaughter to be afraid of things. And on a final note, what's yes. next for you then? Uh, but we want to have our own building and do things different. We want to introduce some trauma-informed um, work there that would be done without people having to be mandated, but people who decide that maybe therapy isn't just for white people. <laughs> that is true. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And maybe it's not just for white people. Maybe it would benefit us in some way. Maybe Maybe our kids would stop going to prison if we could like know how to have a conversation that isn't that, that's it's all fear generated. But there's a different way to have a fear generated conversation than to be angry. Yeah. So Marianne, thank you very, very much thank for this, you. this very was great. insightful, thoughtful conversation. Ladies and gentlemen, Marianne Diaz. Thank you. Thank you.